You're listening to the Kakai Meitahi Podcast, Episode 3, Koeha Ho'uhinga. I'm Lilika. And I'm Maka. And we're two Tongan sisters connecting from opposite ends of the Pacific Ocean, but more importantly, connecting back to our people of Oceania. Let's get started. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in and you're wondering who we are, go ahead and listen to our first episode where we talk about who we are and why we are doing this podcast together. Also, please do not come at us or judge us for our audio quality. Okay, we're still learning over here. Okay, let's get into our recap. So previously on episode two, we talked about migration and... So we just wanted to recap. Yeah, I think uh, we just wanted to give more information on where you could find out more about things that were mentioned. Okay, so Maka mentioned how her Tongan mentor was working for the Songoreate yeah. Land Trust. And- yeah, so I wanted to give more information on that land trust in case anyone wanted to follow up uh, just to learn more about what they do. Uh, the so-, so this is a urban indigenous women-led community organization um, they're based in Chechenyo Ohlone land, um, and they facilitate like the return of Ohlone lands to indigenous stewardship. So say you have like a plot of land in the Bay Area, um, specifically if you live within the Chechenyo territory, um, Chechenyo and Karkin, I think those are the two territories. If you have a plot of land there and you're, you want to give it up <laughs> because you want to, you know, uh, do your... Do your good deed to the indigenous people of the Bay Area. Um, this is how you would do that. Uh, you would donate your land to this land trust, and then they have like programs where they have community gardens. They will they'll use your land to grow food. They give jobs to people who can't get jobs otherwise. Um, for instance, anyone who is undocumented would definitely be encouraged to work on this land. Um, so it's just a way of returning to you know, growing your own foods, living off the land and, you know, remembering that we have, there, there are other ways of living that you could survive off of this. Um, something that it reminded me of, I think, I don't know if we mentioned it before, but we, well, we, we, we had a house in Ho'ula once and there was like an empty lot right next to the house. And our, when our grandpa came to stay with us, he just, he just made it into a farm. He was he's a farmer back in Tonga, but he just like planted his own tea leaves. Yeah, we had a taro farm taro, up yeah, in the front, yeah. like our front yard, yeah. and tea leaves, and we had lu like bele. Yeah, it's similar to that in that we're trying to recall this that like our traditional ways of survival. Okay, so the website is songoreate. S o g o r e a. Te, te, and then landtrust.com. So songreate-landtrust.com is their website. They are also on Facebook. I'm sure they're on many other social media sites. Um, but yeah, definitely check them out um, if you want to get more involved or interested in learning more about it. Uh, but yeah, just so that I, I just feel like it's important for us as as a Pacific Islander community to recognize 
the natives in our area like the you know what i mean like whoever's listening might not be in the bay area but i just think we should also encourage people to like look into who are the native americans or first nations in your area yeah because we're immigrants um and also like i feel like i feel like that's the only way that we're gonna survive is by figuring out how we can get back to living in a sustainable way and who best to teach us that than people who've survived here for thousands of years exactly uh, okay and while we're on that um we also mentioned the snotty nose res kids in our last episode yeah so snotty nose res kids again they're two hip-hop artists from canada first nations hip-hop artists from canada first nations is used to refer to the indigenous people of canada south of the arctic circle their tribe name is they're actually Heisla Nation. It's a coastal tribe. So they're along the Pacific. They're along the coast of the Pacific. They're on the west coast of Canada. Um, and I mean, it's just like something cool that ties them back to uh, Oceania. You know, yeah, Oceania. It's just all full circle. Um, That's so, so they're cool. indigenous artists. Uh, the song that we were referencing in the last uh, that I was referencing in the last episode uh, is called Skoden. And Skoden is used as like it's like a slang term on the reservation that's used for like, oh, are you down? I'm down. Like, let's go. Let's go then. Let's do it. So it, like it just became Skoden. Yeah. So Skoden is is the song um, and it was used in the song to like refer to, oh, are you down to stand up against this pipeline? Like, let's go then. <laughs> let's do it. Um, so that's kind of how it became a, a rallying cry around Standing Rock. I, I actually got to see them perform at Stanford. Uh, and my housemate, my housemate, they made him and his other, him and his friends made these uh, Skoden shirts where the S in the Skoden was a Stanford S. And they saw them wearing the shirt. So they invited them to come up on stage with them. Did you guys give them a shirt? No, I don't think they gave them a shirt. They, they made these. They made like they made like very limited shirts. This is only like you if you're part of the crew, the you got a shirt. Back. That's cool. They should have. No, no, no. They should have. But they were. They like got to go upstage and they performed with them. They performed Skoden with their shirts on. It nice. was so sick. But you know they're still releasing music. They just uh, they had uh, their third album came out, Trap Line, and it came out this past May. Um, and my favorite track from that album is called Son of a Matriarch. Uh, it's, it actually deals with like themes of, um, returning to a matriarchal society, which Heisla Nation is. And I really like it because like similar to Tongan, yeah. um, Tongan is not entirely matriarchal. Um, but we do like women do carry a lot of status. I think we talked before about the Fahu right. who has like, no matter what your age, if you're the, if you're the sister of a brother, like if you, the oldest sister always has that that rank above you um, right right okay so another thing that we mentioned uh was an article on uh Tongan immigration to the states through the LDS church through the Mormon right. church and I finally un I finally found the article that I was referring to uh, but it's kind of sketchy. I'll, I'll just put it at that. It's kind of sketchy because it's it's written by this person named Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper, who? and I can't find I can't find <laughs> any information on her. There is no information on her background or her credentials, like how she knows all this information on Tongan immigrants. I do not know. Um, but it's interesting because this article is like referenced across a lot of books, like 
printed published books have referenced this online article yeah yeah i feel like this goes to show that we can't just like trust every single thing we read in textbooks especially textbooks that are written by people who are not pacific islanders like it's i think this goes to show that it's really important to also just you know take everything with a grain of salt right right yeah i think i think um we can get more into that throughout in this episode episode three where we talk about language and language barriers and things that are lost in translation but when you're like a non-pacific person and you're coming into a pacific like realm and trying to write things on them and study them and research them you lose a lot of context because you didn't grow up in that area you don't understand like when someone translates something to you there's often things that can't be translated yeah, for example, for example, the picture that you found. Yeah, so in this in this article that again is referenced across several books and student papers, in this article there's a picture, there's a picture that's captioned this Tongan American man is a primary participant in a luau. And he legit looks like a guy working the Samoa village at PCC in Laie. Like they look like they took him straight off the pamphlet and just put him into this article. And there's no name on him. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's exactly what they did. And it just sucks because we as Pacific Islanders, when we see this photo put together with that caption, like it's way off. We know it's like, what does that caption even mean? Yeah, it's uh, it sounds like it's just casual to have, you know, Tongan men being primary participants in a luau like i don't even know what that means is he cooking like is he is he performing at this luau but also i i don't know there's there's like several things that it's legit like straight off of pcc's pamphlet right right yeah yeah he's He's like wearing the someone well i i he could be talking he just is totally wearing like someone yeah that's what i meant like he's this this the attire is not talking at all yeah so I'm just like, girl. Yeah. <laughs> Amy. Okay, Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper. <laughs> Amy. Somebody come get Amy Cooper out if of anyone... here right now. <laughs> and please, if you guys are referencing this person, this article, any of your student papers, please like go find a more legit reference. She has books listed at the bottom of the article. But again, even those books are more non-Pacific authors. So yeah, just just, you know, try to do some... So more research before you just right, quote right. You find on the internet. That's good. Um, good to note. Good to note. This week's Tongan Word of the Day is provided by the One Tongan Word a Day Instagram group. This group shares a Tongan word or phrase daily. It is an exclusive group thread, but it's open to anyone looking to learn more Tongan. Contact Elizabeth Kite at E-V-K-I-T-E on Instagram to join in. The word is femolimoli'i, to each take a little piece of, to be shared out in small portions. The word moli refers to the orange. We take it out like piece by piece when we're eating the orange fruit. This is where the part moli comes from. The sentence is, We each took a little piece of mele's cake. There is a proverb too that's relevant to this, and the proverb is, when there is a little, it has to be shared out in small portions. When there is plenty, each can have what he wants. We want to thank Sela Ofeinalangi for this 
word of the day. And Sela says that the word femolimoli'i highlights and demonstrates the concept of sharing and humility, which we as Tongans uphold. No matter how big or small, we are always taught to share and be humble. Thank you, Sela, for the Tongan word of the day. This is our Saikitao Ilo segment where we will be sharing random facts that are relevant to Kakaimitahi. In Tongan, Saikitao Ilo means good to know. You can use this phrase when someone shares unsolicited information. So in this case, nobody asked, but here we are. Did you know that the Kumala is native to South America? So the Kumala in Tongan uh, is the sweet potato and it's a certain kind of sweet potato. At least when we were growing up, I did not know that there was another type of sweet potato. I thought all sweet potatoes were purple. So what we wanted to talk about today was that that's this type of sweet potato that we have in Tonga, the type of sweet potato that we've been eating growing up, is the same sweet potato that's native to South America. It's native to the Quechua tribe. They're originally from the place that's now known today as Peru. So this is an indigenous plant that uh, the native people, the Quechua people, um, grow. They grow all kinds of potatoes. But this certain sweet potato is a sweet potato that has been dispersed and distributed all across the Pacific long before, you know, Captain Cook and all these colonizers came to the Pacific. And so something that's cool about that is that it just goes to show that we were actively engaged in trade with indigenous populations along uh, the south along South America um and then that we were also engaged in continuing that trade across the Pacific because again this this is a sweet potato that we all have in our different Oceania cultures we all have our own name for it and a lot of the names are very similar like Kumala is actually very similar to what this Quechua tribe calls the sweet potato there in their language and i think it's we don't know how to pronounce it since we want to make sure that we pronounce things correctly on here we're not going to pronounce it we're just going to spell it yeah we 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 did try to find a pronunciation um but uh, a lot of the videos of the Quechua people seem to be in spanish uh, but it is spelled k u m a r a pretty much identical to how the maori spell it uh which is also kumara the first time I heard this was actually from a Palawan student recently, like only last year. I did not know that the Kumala wasn't native to the South Pacific because we grew up eating this among like a lot of other Tongan foods. Um, but I didn't know that this was something that wasn't originally Tongan or wasn't indigenous to the Pacific. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Saikitao ilo. In Tongan, the word ma'alie means good, pleasing, interesting, commendable, admirable, basically all the good things. So when someone does something good and you want to highlight them, you want to praise them, you want to commend them, you'd say ma'alie. This is our Malie highlight, where we would like to recognize some dokukai metahi who continue to raise awareness and share their goodness out in our Pacific Islander community. Today's highlight goes to Teresa Siangatonu. She's a poet, a writer, an educator, and a community leader. Uh, so the first time I heard about Teresa or I came across her work was actually on YouTube. Uh, I was following a lot of uh, Polynesian slam poetry artists here in the bay and i was i don't know i thought it was really trippy that these people were 
were performing slam poetry. Um, I remember like being exposed to it really young, but not really knowing much about it uh, at all or seeing it again after like seeing it pretty briefly when we were growing up. But when I got to the Bay, that was something that I saw so much of at school. These were people that, that were dealing with a lot of like intense topics, but none of them looked like me. So it f often felt like I couldn't relate to a lot of what they were saying. And then when I found all these videos on YouTube of Polynesians that were doing it, and they were talking about being what it means to be Polynesian and go through a lot of these hard experiences, not only just in the classroom, but you know, like afterwards in life. So Teresa was one of the videos that I came across. The first video that I saw by her was Meuli, which is the Samoan word for black. And that poem really messed me up because like anti-blackness is definitely something that I didn't hear of until I got to college. Like growing up, we always knew that because we'd get in trouble if we stayed out in the sun too long. Like a lot of things that we that I noticed growing up was that it was better to be fair skinned. When I heard her poem talk about how mea uli just means like dirty thing, I was thinking of how in Tongan we call what, what we say is uli uli. So yeah, that poem really stuck with me because it was the first time I was seeing like a Polynesian talk about what it meant to have anti-blackness embedded in your culture. So um, I recently just came across Teresa's Instagram page. I had no idea who she was before this, but she had shared one of her poems at an event for climate change. And I am a huge fan of the TV show, How to Get Away with Murder. And so I saw that Matt McGorry was going live and he was recording Teresa sharing her, her poem. And that was the first time I had ever seen Teresa perform at all was through this live. And so I reached out to Teresa and asked her if it was okay that we could share her poem so with her permission, we are sharing the audio here on the podcast. It's actually also published in Poetry Magazine. So we're going to leave a link to that on our Instagram page. So here it is. The poem is called Atlas by Teresa Siangatonu. If you open up any atlas and take a look at a map of the world, almost every single one of them slices the Pacific Ocean in half. To the human eye, most maps center all land masses on Earth, creating the illusion that water can handle the butchering and be pushed to the edges of the world. As if the Pacific Ocean isn't the largest body living today, beating the loudest heart, the reason why land has a pulse in the first place. The audacity one must have to create a visual so violent as to assume that nobody comes from water, so nobody will care what you do with it. And yet, People came from land, are still coming from land, and look what was done to them. When people ask me where I'm from, they don't believe me when I say water. So instead, I tell them that home is a machete and I belong to places that don't belong to themselves anymore. Broken and butchered places that have made me a hyphen of a woman, a Samoan American that carries the weight of both colonizer and colonized, both blade and blood, Samoa, stolen. California, stolen. California, nestled on the western coast of the most powerful country on the planet, Samoa, an island so microscopic on a map, it's no wonder people doubt its existence. California, a state of emergency away of having the drought rid of all its water, Samoa, a state of emergency away of becoming a saltwater cemetery if the waters don't stop rising. When people ask me where I'm from, what they want is to hear me speak of land. 
What they want is to know where I go once I leave here. The audacity people must have to assume that home is just the destination and not the panic, not the constant migration that the panic gives birth to. What is it like to know that home is something that is waiting for you to return to it? What does it mean to belong to something that isn't sinking? What does it mean to belong to the very thing that is causing the flood? So many of us come from water, but when you come from water, no one believes you. Colonization keeps laughing. Global warming is grinning all at your grief. How you mourn the loss of a home that isn't even gone yet, that no one believes you're from. How everyone is beginning to hear more about your islands, but only in the context of vacations and honeymoons, football and military life, exotic women, exotic fruit, exotic beaches, but never asks about the rest of its body, the water, the ocean that it comes from, the reason why it's sinking. No one visualizes the Pacific Islands as actually being there. You explain and explain and clarify and fix their incorrect pronunciation and explain until they realize just how vast your ocean is, how microscopic your islands look in it, how easy it is to miss when looking on a map of the world. Excuses people make for why they didn't see it before. Oh, man. So like right from the get go, when she says that when you open up an atlas, every map, basically uh, pretty much every map splits the Pacific Ocean in half. And just like last week, I was looking to post a picture on Instagram and I came across like a bunch of sites that create these maps. Like they're like map generators. So you plug in the place and city and then it'll create the map for you with the route. So I was trying to put Tonga. Hawaii, California, and Japan all in one place. But every time the map generated, it would give me half, like a split map. And I was so annoyed because I was like, why is it doing this? And just days later, I hear this poem and I'm like, dude, this is so real. Yeah, I really liked um, the line about not only is the Pacific Ocean split in half in the maps, um, but the line that says this creates the illusion that the water can handle the butchering and be pulled to the edges of the world. I, I I feel like I never thought about this before. I remember, like, we all knew that the most common maps, like, it always splits the Pacific. Because the maps are, like, are centered on Europe. Like, Europeans are the ones that made the maps now. Which is why Europe is in the center and the top of the right. world. Like, maps could have made be made in any direction. But it's made in that direction because it centers Europe. But I never thought of how the Pacific is split like that and never thought of what the implications are of what that means. Because if that means that you can just split like this massive like body of water, then you're not seeing it as as what she was saying in the poem. You're not seeing it as someone's home. Like you wouldn't do that <laughs> if people actually lived yeah, there. Yeah, wouldn't, they wouldn't do that to Europe. They wouldn't split Europe. In yeah, half. of course not. Of course not. You know, like that's that's why it's just it's interesting how she brings that up. And then she relates it to the splitting of Samoa and to how like all this land in America stolen and how they were stolen and then split off into these states that exist today. So, yeah, I really like that idea because I think I've always thought of that in the mind frame of like uh, native territories being split apart. But I never thought of it as like the ocean also is being split apart in these maps. Okay, so today's episode is titled Koeha Ho'uhinga. And in Tongan, this means 
What is your meaning? What is your reason? What do you mean by that? You use it in the sense where like you're trying to get more, like elaborate more, expound more on what was being said. And the reason why we titled today's episode in that way, following up from migration and Chongin's like migrating across the different places in the world, we wanted to follow that up with, I think language barriers, but also like cultural barriers. Like when you go into a new place and you don't really understand the meaning behind something that's being done a certain way, this is what you'd ask. Like, what is what is the purpose of this? What What's the reason? What do you mean by this? And so today's episode, we wanted to talk about experiences that we've had with the Tongan language growing up and then with the Tongan language again in the various places that we live now. When we were growing up, we heard a lot of Tongan from my mom. She spoke a lot of Tongan to us, but our because our dad grew up in California and Oakland, he spoke more English. So we had both Tongan and English pretty much half and half in our house. We also grew up going to the Tongan speaking wards. We at the time were living in Laie, so we were going to the Kahuku ward. Then we moved to Haula. And that's when we started attending the Haula 6th Ward. And then when we moved to Honolulu, we also went to the Honolulu Tongan Ward. At the time, there was only one, but they've split now. There's two Tongan Wards out there in Honolulu now. My experience, I'm just speaking for myself, but when I was growing up, I didn't feel like I wasn't enough Tongan because I didn't know enough Tongan. I actually knew Tongans who spoke a little bit more Tongan than me, but I've never felt yeah, the stigma of not being Tongan enough because they didn't know the language. Yeah, I think similar to Bona, like no one really made it a big deal in the North Shore that you didn't speak Tongan. At least I don't think I had any experiences of of people saying anything about that. But it wasn't, again, until I moved to California, it was with our family. Like, I feel like a lot of our family out here do speak a lot of Tongan. Just going back to like the stigma about not knowing the language, I don't think it's really ever affected me because I've never been in a situation where I had to prove my Tonganness. Yeah, I feel like people who make you feel like you're not Tongan enough are doing that on purpose. That's just kind of like messed up and shady. I don't feel like anyone should feel embarrassed for not knowing how to speak their cultural language. Yeah, I think I think it might depend. Like for me, I feel like it depends on the context. I remember there was talk of, especially around like the Miss Heilala competition, there was talk of people thinking that it should be a requirement that Miss Heilala should speak fluent Tongan. And I feel like there was a lot of pushback from people who were like, you know, you shouldn't have to prove your talk, like someone going along the lines that you're saying. But honestly, like when I think of people who had to run for the role of Mayday Queen, at Puno, you have to write a speech and you have to say it in Hawaiian. Like you have to perform the hula, you have to say it. Like there's all these requirements. But I would say like Miss Heilala would probably be, you know, because it's international. These are Tongans that are coming from all over the world, coming back to Tonga and competing right. in this competition. And I feel like it makes sense to have that requirement. If you're gonna if you're gonna represent a country and you don't speak the the mother yeah. tongue like that's and not so much that you have to be fluent but at least like try to make that effort into learning the language. Um, going back to the stigma though, like we also mentioned and talked about ESL classes and growing up for me in elementary, like my view and perspective of ESL kids were that they were from Tonga, they didn't know how to speak English. Like that was my 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 mentality as a little kid when i saw esl students they were separated from us because schools put them in a different class and they had like a special class just for them so it was like had this like otherness to them that created this mentality in my mind that you know they weren't the same as they weren't at the same level of 
intellect as I was, which is like so wrong. Obviously, like I know that that's not true, but I think schools can be better at handling ESL classes in that way where it's not separated. Yeah, no, that. I think that's that's real. I think I also had the same similar, similar like the same perspective as a kid. Um as a kid you make fun of fobs, you know, you make fun of your parents, you make fun of them when they fob out. You make fun of like kids who are straight from islands and they don't know how to speak English because you're in a you're in a school that's safe where everyone speaks English. And you can point to them and you're like, oh, you're different. You're weird. You know? And I think that, like, how you said, by creating these ESL classes that, like, separates them from everyone, it does have this effect of reinforcing a view that they're, you know, not as good as us or not as good as those who speak English. And I think that's really messed up. But, I mean, we saw this in our class when uh, when I was in Japan um, visiting oh, Lika. That's right. So Maka came last summer for about two or three months and she stayed with me at the time i was working at a preschool and i had asked if they were hiring and so they hired maka for those two to three months to work with me and this was like an international school it's all english speaking for kids from the ages one to five and this was like right before kindergarten so a lot of these kids come into the school and english is their second language japanese is their first language they all speak japanese at home but once they come to school it's all in English. And one of the biggest roles that they had at this school was that if a kid is speaking Japanese, the teacher has to stop and let them know, hey, no Japanese. Like we were scolding them, which which was wrong. By the way, I quit this I quit this job because there were so many things that just didn't sit well with me. And what this was one of those things. I feel like there were better ways that we could have handled that. Scolding a kid for speaking their native tongue was creating so much shame on them i think it was stressful for some kids yeah um and honestly like it has like very similar mentality to what what hawaiian kids are put through in hawaii and what Tongan kids are put through to today in government schools english is the only spoken language in the school you can't speak any other language and you know we see this changing in california at least where they do have like schools that are spanish-speaking or like classes that are spanish-speaking but that idea that it's wrong and it's bad to speak your native language is definitely a thing that still exists today. Which goes back to what I'm trying to say is that nobody should ever feel like they're not enough just because they don't know a language. I personally feel like there's always a solution to the language barrier and that is to just put in the effort to learn the language. I think people just don't prioritize it and I name myself as one of those people. Even now as we grow up, like even though we, we say that we wish that we could have spoken Tongan growing up, often when I hear people say that, it kind of sounds like that sucks that my parents didn't teach me Tongan. But like we're grown adults now. Everyone can learn. There's resources that are available. It's just us not making the time. And that's why I want to name myself because I haven't made the time to go out and do all that work. Yeah, for sure. I think it's really important for me to recognize that when I don't put in the effort to learn my own cultural language or just any language at all, I'm the only one that creates that barrier. In Ebeli Haofa's essay called Past to Remember, he says, all social realities are human creations and that if we fail to construct our own realities, other people will do it for us. In order for us to gain great autonomy than we have today and maintain 
maintain it within the global system, we must, in addition to other measures, be able to define and construct our pasts and present in our own ways. We cannot continue to rely on others to do it for us because autonomy cannot be attained through dependence. And I think this applies to everything, not just the language barrier, but also the cultural barrier. Like, I have to put the effort to learn about my own culture from my own people. Otherwise, outsiders like Amy Cooper are going to do it for me. I am the creator of my own reality. I think when we shame others for not knowing their cultural language, when we become ashamed to learn our own cultural language, we as a people lose the connection and the confidence in learning more about ourselves from our own people. I've seen instances where we even go to create drama between ourselves because some of us are dependent on what they've read in textbooks written by outsiders about us. We start to believe what they share about us. Like we start to believe we are just a speck on the map. We start to believe that we are obese. We start to believe that we can easily get diabetes. We start to believe these stereotypes that outsiders make. We start to believe outsiders' perspective of us, but that does not have to be our reality. It's very dangerous to depend on what outsiders say about us because that has a huge impact on how we look at ourselves. And I just want to end this as our takeaway for today that ultimately there is no shame when it comes to learning languages, especially if it is our own cultural language. Don't be ashamed to try and speak within our family circles and with friends who are fluent. And if you are fluent in the language, we encourage you to help others. And this is for English speakers too. If you're fluent in English, please be more encouraging to those who aren't. And that's all for episode three. Goiha ho uhinga. See you next time.